This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello there, very good afternoon to you. Hope your Wednesday's going well. Today, the state's amended Aboriginal cultural heritage laws are expected to pass through Parliament this week, so we'll take a look at that, get an update on the situation. We'll also take a look at tractor sales this hour because sales for September are down around 23% on last year. So we'll get Gary Northover on. He's the head of Australia's Tractor and Machinery Association just to talk about some of the reasons why those sales are down that 23% mark. Five past 12 here on the Country Hour on the ABC right across Western Australia and on the ABC Listen app. First today, a large aggregation of livestock properties in WA's Kimberley, covering almost 3 million hectares, is expected to fetch over $250 million. The Kimberley cattle portfolio runs up to 50,000 breeders, over seven pastoral leases and five subleases as well as an adjustment agreement. Danny Thomas is Senior Director with real estate company LAWD. Danny, $250 million is a lot of money, slightly more than I have in my bank account, but is it a lot of money for 3 million hectares of land in the Kimberley? Yeah, well, I think you're probably selling yourself short, Linda. But, um, yeah, no, it's... uh still a significant undertaking. At the end of the day, they're pastoral leases. It's not freehold land uh, and it is in the Kimberley. So, yeah, it's it's not cheap by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, contextually it's not particularly dear either. Now, there's a lot of water that comes along with these uh, properties, this uh, aggregate, both in the current allowance, which is 9,500 uh, megalitres water licence. That's on Shamrock Station. And then there's the irrigation potential along the Fitzroy River tributaries. So we're talking about Margaret River, Mary River, Louisa River and Christmas Creek. So how much does that contribute to the value of the whole aggregation? I think the opportunity here, Belinda's probably going to be, and the the market will tell us at the end of the day, the ability to be able to pivot away from live export totally or to run basically a turnstile that it gives you access to both markets. So I'm expecting to see people come, you know, for this looking for something that can produce, you know, backgrounded or even finished cattle in spec suitable for a southern market as well as, you know, the northern live export market. And are the cattle being sold in with the land? Uh, yeah, it's walk in, walk out. Yeah, it's yeah. a total deal, comes with management and staff. It's a very, very well-run business. And how many head? Uh, it's about fifth or between forty-five and 50,000 breeders and then there'll be you know, all the progeny and followers as usual. Yeah, okay. And do you know the current value of those cattle if we look at the current market? Uh, yeah, no, that's an interesting question. I, I think when you're selling a station like this, walk in, walk out, the cattle probably have a different value to what their spot price is. You know, if you wanted to stock these stations, it'd cost you a lot of time and money and then so obviously the transport cost as well. So a vendor would typically pick up a premium for the fact that the properties are stocked and they're stocked with, you know, excellent cattle. So when you look across these properties, what do you sort of highlight as the 
key attributes here that would bring in the buyers? Oh, scales, obviously, you know, one of the key things, and you know, you're seeing that being amplified everywhere. You've said it yourself, it's nearly 3,000 hectares. Uh, I, I think what's... Three million. Yeah, you know, yeah, three million. That's right, I beg your pardon. I think what's um, unique here, unique's an overused word, but I think what's unique here is the proximity of all of the stations together, how they've been integrated and run together, and the development that's been done on livestock water to maximise the grazing. So that the guys have done an exceptionally good job. Very, very good new infrastructure. What can you tell us about the current owner? Uh, you know, billionaire family, astute investors, taking opportunity to, in an orderly way, roll out of that investment and go and focus on some of their other core investments. A Chinese-owned, is that right? A Chinese-Australian, yeah. Yeah, okay. Why do they want to get out at this point? Um, I think it's just, you know, the investment's run its race. You know, despite all of the sort of talk about people thinking that the market's tanking or whatever else, you know, we're still experiencing pretty robust demand for institutional-scale assets, so the, the market's basically stratifying. You know, there's still a premium associated with stuff that's in the institutional scale, sort of $50 million plus. Plenty of money around for that and, and lots of new money looking for natural capital investment too. What about the timing of the sale? As you said, I mean, cattle prices aren't what they were even, you know, a couple of years ago. They're significantly reduced. There's trouble with the key market in Indonesia with the recent lumpy skin disease concerns. Um, what do you? What advice do you give to someone with those kind of concerns around the industry at the moment, looking at selling now? I think you've just got to work out whether or not you're pot committed to, you know, the northern stuff. So there's some of the constraints that you're talking about for, you know, purely northern focused assets. Uh, I think you're seeing more and more of those assets that have got, you know, good logistical connections to access southern markets, are pivoting away from, you know, purely the boss indigus animal. There's more crossbred going in there and they're infusing more Taurus and Wagyu into some of those herds to make sure that they've got the option to go south. Um, if you've got the ability to be able to do that, you're in a, you're in a pretty good spot. If you've got uh, an ability to do tap the natural capital markets and, and access some carbon-style buyers and whatever else, then that's, that's pretty exciting as well. Some of the guys that are looking to do nature repair. So it's all about really working at what the highest and best use of your station is. It's not necessarily 100% perfect. No, but do you believe that side of the business would continue? Absolutely, yeah. You, you need to continue to run cattle even if you're going to run a, a carbon project or, or do one of those natural capital investments. So who's going to be interested here? Oh, I think it'll be a whole lot of global institutions. You know, you, you're getting up into a, a sum of money at quarter of a billion dollars that is really going to attract some of the direct investing pensions, some of the funds of funds that do have that natural capital and carbon focus. And then separate of that, you know, there's a number of the pastoral houses that would look at this and go, geez, a lot of the hard work's been done there. We should we should try and step into that. So some of the current players here yeah. in Western Australia yeah. would be keen to. And, 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 and interstate, yeah. Yeah. And when you look across the country uh, and if you're in the market to buy a property like this, what's it sort of competing against at the moment in other states or even within WA? Well, it's extraordinary value compared to Queensland and, and you know, much of the territory. You know, that, that land that land market's had an unbelievable run. And I think, you know, pound for pound, this looks relatively cheap. So, um, you know, if you've got a positive outlook about the beef industry generally uh, and you like the idea of being able to go both ways, north and south, then, then you yeah, know, this should really be something that you're looking at. Danny, good to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks, Belinda. 
Danny Thomas, he's a senior director with the real estate company LAWD, and he is looking after the sale of that Kimberley cattle portfolio, which covers seven pastoral leases and five subleases, as well as the adjustment agreement. Those pastoral leases are Shamrock, Mullabulla, Mount Amherst, Margaret River Station, Beefwood Park, Yugawalla, and Bolka. Uh, and then the subleases and the adjustment too. Uh, yeah, on the market right now after I think seven years of the current owner and um, time to move on. 13 past 12. You're with Belinda Varasgetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. The state's amended Aboriginal cultural heritage laws are expected to pass through Parliament this week. In August, the Western Australian Government repealed the new 2021 Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act and announced an amended version of the 1972 Act would be introduced. That amended version has passed through the lower house and it's now up for discussion in the upper house. Neil Thompson is the Liberal member for the Mining and Pastoral Region. He says overall he's pleased with the changes that have been made but he'd like to see some more protections put in place. I'd like to give some comfort to everybody in this because, one, uh, because of people power, we're seeing the repeal of that new legislation, which was just so bureaucratic. It was so so prescriptive. It was, you're going to need a degree to actually work out what you did to get a permit. That, so that's, that's going to be repealed, uh, and that's gone through the lower house of parliament, so it's coming into the upper house. I'll be the lead for the opposition in that, uh, looking at those uh, provisions that are now being put into the old legislation, which is going to come back into power. Now, there's some protections that have been put in there to give some comfort to uh, people who are concerned about Aboriginal cultural heritage. So, so what are those protections? Yeah. So, so for example, um, there's the opportunity if there's new information. Now, we know with the Duke and Gorge situation, uh, there was some archaeological uh, evidence that came to the fore. Uh, some new information was there. Uh, sort of technically, from a legal standpoint, there was nothing that could be done. That Section 18 approval to destroy that site had already been granted, but under the new provisions, that would then be able to be uh, reassessed and that would be, um, and so that Section 18 could be withdrawn. So I think that provides the protection when new information comes to the fore. So that's the first one. Uh, there's also the opportunity for uh, those native title bodies to appeal through the SAT, the State Administrative Tribunal, uh, to a, a very low-cost mechanism for appeal. And uh, there's a further protection for the state if it's a significant issue uh, for the state, like an economic issue that has to be pushed through, then the Premier can call the matter in and also make a decision. So I think these are uh, sensible changes. Uh, we're obviously looking at the detail of these as they come through, as you do in opposition, to make sure that everything is uh, going to work well. We don't have the unintended consequence of you know a group of people going down to the river sh to plant some trees and being told to stop unless they give a, a $2 million or whatever to a group. That that kind of outrageous behaviour can't happen. And that, I think, going back to this, uh, the existing Act uh, with these changes will actually avoid that. In saying that, I think there's probably some other protections that could be put in place. 
uh, but uh, this is what the government has put for us. What other protections would you put in place if, if it was your up to you? Yeah, so look, I, I think there needs to be a, a reassessment. Uh, there needs to be better definition between uh, some of those significant sites uh, where there are tangible heritage, like those archaeological sites, the, the, the remains, um, where there are, the, like the rock art, for example. When the, the Act was put in place in 72, there was only a handful of sites. Uh, there's 30,000 sites now, and, and there's some very large sites, like uh, right across the Swan Valley, all of the, the metropolitan area of Broome, the Gascoigne River, you know, uh, mythological sites, which... Um, if you just took the black letter of the law, could be applied in a way which would make it very difficult for farmers just to continue the operations, even under the old Act. But, um, look, there's always been wise heads that have applied, and this is, you know, we haven't seen legal action taken, although uh, there's a case at the moment where someone built a, a crossing, a concrete crossing in 2J, uh, where they are currently in court. We don't want to see this, this happening to the average punter out there just doing simple things. Liberal member for the Mining and Pastoral Region, Neil Thompson, speaking to Michelle Stanley about WA's amended Aboriginal cultural heritage laws, which are expected to pass through Parliament this week. This on the text from Peter in Albany. The Premier hinted on Friday afternoon the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act would be addressed and the following Tuesday a brand new bill was tabled in Parliament written by the same people that wrote the previous legislation, which was the biggest legislative disaster in WA history. Are we seriously expected to believe this is not legislative disaster 2.0? Still no public consultation or input. Education workshops made it very clear they were there to explain, not relay feedback to the Minister. Peter's advice, brace yourselves. The text 0448 922604. 18 past 12. Well, harvest has started in Western Australia's northern grain growing regions. And there are lots of crops that are coming off not looking really great at all due to the lack of rain and some hot conditions. Further south, some farmers in the state's great southern region might be harvesting sooner than what they would have liked to be. Cogenup agronomist Corey Taylor says that's because of the recent and the forecast hot weather, which will probably reduce yields a little bit. We've just recently had our first lot of, of proper warm warm weather where it sort of reached around 30 degrees over the uh, recent weekend. So I guess that's, that sort of meant a bit of a, a bit of a dry spell over the last week as well for a lot of our crops. So, yeah, I guess the, the moisture is starting to um, tap out in, in that root zone for, for both our cereal and canola, which is predominantly grown in, in our Great Southern area. So it's sort of looking looking like uh, into the next sort of 10 days as well. It's looking like there, there's a bit of dry weather approaching as well, which will mean a few crops starting to, to turn off. So what does this mean for, for the growers? I guess it means a potentially earlier um, harvesting harvesting date to, to what uh, the typical year would be. So uh, probably shifting that forward maybe a couple of weeks. So we're just leading into... Uh, crop topping timing now um, in the season, which again is yeah, sort of a, a couple of weeks earlier than than previous seasons. But yeah, I guess warmer temperatures, sort of when you get up above 20, 25 degrees, yeah, you you do start to see that increase uh, in maturity, and yeah, harvest date starts to approach a fair bit quicker. Will that impact the bottom line at all? 
I guess it will in in some aspects. Like I, I guess uh, yeah, yields around around the area are looking a tiny bit lower across the board compared to the last uh, two seasons at least that we've had. Yeah, I guess the Cojanup area in previous seasons have suffered from waterlogging. So uh, at least we've got um, somewhat consistent crop across the board. But yeah, those those top end areas uh, will probably be sort of back half a tonne um, potentially in canola and, and probably looking sort of similar to that in the uh, in the cereals as well. Now, you would have been out and about the last couple of days looking at these crops. What do they look like? Yeah, when you when you're walking into to some of these crops, they're pulling up a few few plants that are looking like that root zone has probably run out of moisture a bit. I guess that that comes with a few of the few of the crops starting to get that browning off look to them. I guess yeah, wheat's probably one that we've got to keep an eye out for with that root zone tapping out of moisture. Yeah, I, I guess we've got a lot of heads that are starting to half fill at the moment, so we're hoping hoping they're able to fill to to full size and um, uh, still have that, that grain quality in check. Cojanup Ag Supplies agronomist Corey Taylor speaking to Sophie Johnson. 21 past 12 and in some other grains industry news today, the state's main grain handler, the CBH Group, has appointed Paul Smith as Chief Marketing and Trading Officer following the resignation of Jason Craig earlier this year. Paul Smith has been acting in the role since mid-September, but he's been with the CBH Group for 13 years, managing the pool, commodity swap and grower finance products over the last 10 years. Paul Smith says he's extremely proud to be taking on such an exciting role and looks forward to working with growers and key international customers to take WA's world-class grain products to markets across the globe. 22 past 12 and an update from the newsroom isn't far away at half past 12 and then checking the weather around Western Australia. Uh, Pretty much sunny and hot, I think, sums it up, but we'll get all the details uh, for this afternoon and into the weekend from the Bureau of Meteorology shortly. First, though, a southwest beekeeper who coped with the varroa mite for years in his native New Zealand is optimistic about the future of the industry, even if the destructive pest gets into Western Australia. Steve McQuillan says he's heard many Australian beekeepers are thinking of getting out of the industry now the national approach has changed from eradication to management. But he has every intention of holding on to the small number of hives he has in Bunbury. Lived with the charming varroa mite um, for probably 20, about approximately 25 years in New Zealand, where we treated with bayroll and apivar strips to keep the level of varroa at a feasible amount that the colony could still move forward and harvest the kopani to or surplus to winter through on. You sort of left New Zealand for many reasons, but one of those being to get away from varroa mite, is that right? Yeah, it sort of came in um, with uh, the manuka craze and it took the edge off the highly profitable manuka honey. And um, with money comes lots of people wanting to be beekeepers and the competition was fierce. I kept seeing these pictures in Australian magazines of these beekeepers with 40, 50 highs in the gum trees and seven boxes high. I'm going, wow, that'd be so cool. Happy days, here I am now, and I've experienced the same thing. Although you've lived through it, you're kind of optimistic about how we can manage? Yeah, I definitely am. Um, We will never annihilate the mite, 
but we will learn how to keep it at a level where it's still feasible to keep bees and enjoyable for the home beekeeper and the commercial beekeeper at the same time. Yeah. Do you think we'll lose some numbers of, of people dropping out of being beekeepers because they're, they're scared? I think if there's a, um, a quick fix or a remedy, it shouldn't deter too many people. And as I say, once you learn to live with it and you can still pull a good crop of honey, it's, yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. Um, there might be one or two, but I'd say it won't put a... Once you get a, uh, an addiction for bees like I do, it's pretty hard to get rid of. Once you've got that bug, you've got that bug. Yeah. I see it all the time. And um, we must all sort of try to further our field or interest in keeping bees for the sake of mankind. Mm. You've got friends and family back home in New Zealand that obviously keep bees and, and live with Royal Might. What's it like for them? Um, <clears throat> my brother is a, a commercial beekeeper and my mother was a semi-commercial beekeeper and I'm just a bit of a ragamuffin beekeeper, I suppose. But, um, yeah, they, they learned to live with it and um, paid $50 a year for the two strips per hive. Uh, it was a cost they had to absorb, obviously, but it worked. They kept them at bay where they'd still pull the hives, that is, would pull the surplus of honey enough to sell to make a living from. They just had to change tact. Southwest beekeeper Steve McQuillan speaking about his family's experience with Varroa back in New Zealand. 26 past 12 and El Nino weather forecasts seem to be having a significant impact on tractor sales in Australia. Sales for September are down 23% on last year. Gary Northover is head of Australia's Tractor and Machinery Association and says there are a few reasons why there's been such a big drop in sales. Well, certainly uh, 2023 is... um a different year to the ones that we've had recently. Um, sales are returning back to what we'd more describe as more sort of normal levels. We had two years there where we had approximately 20,000 tractors sold in each year during um, during the latter part of COVID there, and uh, that's now drifting down to a number that's going to be closer to 12,000 tractors this year, so big drop. What's more normal? I'd imagine, for your industry. Is it 12,000 figure or was it the 20,000 figure? It is. No, the 12 is definitely historically what we consider to be a pretty good year. So why were the last two years in particular so big in tractor sales? So a culmination of a couple of things. Certainly the government's uh, instant asset write-off and temporary full expensing programs were encouraging buyers to take advantage of that tax break and buy buy machinery, get the full 100% tax write-off. And generally, the conditions were just so strong. I mean, we'd come off years of drought, if you recall, and um, the market boomed for commodities, and uh, farmers were taking advantage of that and uh, stocking, restocking their fleets. Uh, and, yeah, it was really just a perfect perfect storm for two years there. So if we look at, say, September this year and a 23% fall in sales compared to the year prior, that maybe doesn't look as bad to someone like you because the market was so hot the two years prior to that. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think the challenge for the industry now is, as you come off two years of really busy times, is it going to be a soft landing? Is it going to be a hard landing? Um, we're just watching that one with interest because clearly it's new territory for us and, uh, yeah, there's a bit of adjustment required. 
And is it a good chance for your industry to take a breath? Really, over those two years of, of high demand, we had COVID and, and supply issues as well. People were being told you better organise your tractor almost a year in advance or, or parts, etc. were difficult to come by. Is this a, a good chance to reset for your industry? There's no doubt about that. I think all those things you've described played out for a couple of years and it's really a credit to the industry that they were able to you know, deliver machines in the numbers that they were against that sort of um, challenge. So no doubt taking a breather is nice, um, providing it results in a soft landing, as I said. What we don't want to see is the industry to fall off the cliff. So that's just one thing. Are um, you worried about further falls if this trend continues in terms of sales? Look, not worried, but certainly uh, you've now got not just the... Um, uh, after effects of a, a couple of boom years, the tax incentives have been removed, being compounded by the fact that we've now had a El Nino declared for Eastern Australia, which we don't know how long that's going to be, how severe that's going to be. Therefore, no time to be complacent about where the industry's heading. In terms of the difficulties the industry had in terms of getting equipment into the country for a while there, there was chartered ships and all sorts of things happening mm. for a while. Uh, has that eased? Has that pressure of, of the supply chain eased over the last year or two? Well, certainly the because the demand has perhaps slowed, that pressure has eased. There's still significant lead times. If you wanted to order a new tractor today, you're still looking at you know, 12-month lead times before you saw it. But by and large, I think the demand-supply equations come into a bit more balance than it previously was. That's not to say they're not still problems with uh, particularly Roro, uh, machines that come through wharf. If there's any hint of a quarantine issue there, then um, then there's some pretty uh, can be some pretty dramatic uh, hold-ups, uh, processing some of that stuff. So still some challenges there. That's physically getting it off the ship and cleaned before you can take delivery. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Just uh, various um, incidents can occur, but it's just a, a resourcing issue. There's still plenty of um, activity on the wharves and uh, getting getting your machinery through isn't always guaranteed as, uh, to be as timely as you'd like. Gary Northover, he's the Executive Director of the Tractor and Machinery Association of Australia and he was speaking to Warwick Long. Half past 12 here on the Country Hour. Jonathan Hopper is here with the news headlines. Good afternoon, Belinda. The Department of Fire and Emergency Services says a fire which erupted after a truck and a car collided in WA's Pilbara is still burning. At least two people are dead after a triple road train carrying 25 tonnes of ammonium nitrate collided with another vehicle yesterday afternoon. The collision occurred on Great Northern Highway, which remains closed between the Oski Roadhouse and Karajini Drive. DFAIR Superintendent Daryl Ray says the site is still unsafe. Australia's entertainment industry is mourning the death of New Zealand-born comedian Cal Wilson, who has died aged 53 following a short illness. Wilson was a constant on the comedy scene for two decades, appearing on shows such as Spicks and Specs, Good News Week, and was a co-host of The Great Australian Bake Off. And Eagles trade acquisition Matt Flynn says his move west was a business decision. The Ruckman joined West Coast last week on the first day of the free agency period after eight years at GWS. The 26-year-old says discussions with Eagles coach Adam Simpson convinced him to move, but leaving the Giants was tough. Thanks, Belinda. Thank you for the update, Jonathan. Appreciate that. 28 to 1. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. Good to have you along. And don't go anywhere. I want you to meet Hayden Russell shortly. Uh, I heard Hayden speaking to 
Stan Shaw on The Breakfast Show earlier in the week and it was such a great story, just really um, one of those stories that you hear about someone doing it tough in those early years, a real struggle through childhood and then just coming out the other end and really doing so well right now. He's in the dairy industry. He'll tell you his story shortly. And then it's off to Katanning for the results of the sheep market just before the news at one o'clock. Right now, off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Catherine Shelfout is with you today. Now, Catherine, it's, um, there's not a lot to talk about right across the state, really, is there? We'll start in the Southwest Land Division, but it's um, hot and sunny. It might be a short uh, country hour, <laughs> Belinda. I'm thinking, how can I pad this out? Um, yeah, it is uh, pretty straightforward. We've got a, um, a pretty strong ridge pushing in over southern WA and that's uh, really the main feature and it will stick around for about six days or so. So um, on the satellite at the moment we can see yeah, there's a fair bit of cloud just along the south coast, a little bit up around the southwest corner and some mid-level cloud, um, just sort of remnants from yesterday streaming through the Gascoigne and the gold fields there. So... Um, that ridge is just going to slowly extend along the south coast, um, yeah, like I said, right through till about Monday. And uh, we've got a weak trough that's near the west coast now, and that will deepen um, across the time period as well. So it's very similar to pattern to what we've had, um, yeah, repeating uh, the last couple of weeks. So um, that trough probably won't uh, move inland till around about Monday afternoon. So weather-wise, what we'll see is, um, yeah, pretty quiet, no significant or not really any precipitation expected uh, across the southern half of the next four days. We do have a chance of thunderstorms in the northern part of the goldfields today. I think it's oh, only a slight chance um, any storms would be dry and probably just have some wind gusts associated with them. Uh, and tomorrow, a similar chance of dry thunderstorms through the inland Gascoigne. Um, Fog possible, a little bit of uh, patchy fog around southern districts each of the four mornings coming up over the next four days, um, just basically underneath the ridge near the south coast where winds are light. And, yeah, as I mentioned, wind's pretty light there, but we will have some um, gusty easterly winds through central parts of the state, um, just depending on um, how the ridge is uh, sort of strengthening. So uh, for tomorrow, yeah, through the Gascoigne, northern parts of the southwest uh, land division, we'll get those gusty easterlies and temperatures increasing. So the hottest day um, near the west coast will probably be Monday. So we're looking at temps getting up to about 38 degrees through the uh, central west and northern parts of the lower west. And then we'll see those really hot temperatures um, move through as they usually do through the um, Great Southern and the central wheat belt on Tuesday and Wednesday as the trough slowly moves inland. And a similar story as far as the hot conditions in northern and eastern parts? Yeah, it's really quiet in the north, so there's no thunderstorms um, on their outlook for, yep, the next seven days, really. Um, temperatures uh, through the Pilbara and the Kimberley at the moment are in the high 30s and into the low 40s, and that's going to stick around. Um, hot and dry, yeah, sort of just a weak trough up there. So at the moment, um, fairly weak sort of easterly flow uh, and sea breezes coming in. They will get um, a bit of a surge as the trough, uh, sorry, as the ridge to the south deepens. So it looks like on Friday uh, they'll get an easterly uh, wind surge moving through the Pilbara and the southern Kimberley and that will move a little bit further north uh, on Saturday and push through. So, yeah, nothing too exciting up there either. And warnings today, anything about yeah, we've got a strong wind warning um, along the Ningaloo, 
Gaskell and Geraldton coasts on uh, the west coast there and also on the Esperance and Eucla coast. And that's it. Catherine, your work is done. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. 24 to 1 here on the Country Hour and no rain anywhere in Western Australia in the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning. As I mentioned, we will head to Katanning for the results of the sheep market. Check the yarding and the prices. That's just before the news at 1. And would you drink lab brewed milk? Precision fermentation has been used for more than 20 years to produce cheese. But an Australian company called Eden Brew has just raised $25 million from investors who are keen to back a precision fermented milk project. Jim Fader is Eden Brew's co-founder and CEO, and he says he's going to lodge an application with the food safety regulator for permission to sell the non-animal dairy product as soon as next year. So Eden Brew uh, is a business using precision fermentation to brew casein proteins uh, and then we are able to encourage those casein proteins to form the casein micelle much like the casein micelle is formed inside the cow. We're looking to very closely emulate the dairy sensory experience and the nutritional profile of dairy milk. Why are you looking to emulate something that is produced by cows the world over already? Uh, Because we're going to need a lot more of it. As economies get more prosperous uh, and people earn more money, they make different choices. And so that is going to drive, whether it's beef, lamb, chicken, pork, dairy, up to a doubling of demand in protein over the next 30 years. So it's it's less about replacing what's already here and it's more about augmenting supply because we've got to make a lot more food really quickly. The milk pool in Australia has been dropping year on year, I think, over the past decade. Could what you're producing perhaps plug some of that gap? Uh, 100%. I mean, we're really proud to be co-founded by Norco. And our business model is to brew the proteins centrally at scale because they're quite expensive. So that's to get to least cost, turn it into a powder. We then send those powders up to Norco who rehydrate them, uh, blend with other ingredients. And then at that point, really treat it as if it was raw milk from a dairy farm. So it goes down their existing milk production line uh, into you know through the bottling machines out onto the trucks. Uh, and, and what is happening in terms of business development? with Eden Brew? Uh, so we're relatively early. We're um, at, the, at the stage of making prototype products and scaling the science. So we can make the product in uh, like a 10-litre fermenter, but we need to brew the proteins in a 100,000-litre fermenter to get the costs down to um, close to what someone would be willing to pay. Um, so that's about another 12 months to, to get that process done. And the uh, capital raise of $25 million we announced is really about unlocking um, all of that activity. In parallel, we're doing a lot of work around what our go-to-market strategy is, So, and we also need to put a Fizance application in, which is about 12 months to gain approval. Where did that $25 million capital investment come from? A raft of different investors. Uh, so Main Sequence Ventures, who is our um, incumbent main shareholder, led this investment. But then uh, we were very proud to also achieve a large investment from Breakthrough Victoria. So they'll put in up, up to $6 million um, in this round. Um, And then we've got um, investment from venture capitalists in America, uh, from uh, large businesses in Europe, from high net worth individuals and uh, private equity uh, in Asia and Australia. And then uh, to cap it off, we've also um, got some money from uh, some investment from high profile uh, celebrities in the music industry in Australia.
What's the international interest in developing the process here in Australia? So I think that uh, it's, it is a bit unusual to get direct investment uh, into an Australian business, particularly from America. Normally that investment is uh, more concerned with proximity to business development in America. And I think it talks uh, greatly to the strides that the Australian ecosystem is making, the profile that we've got and the, uh, the science and the R&D standards that we are achieving. There's a great need for this technology to hit the market and I think that um, Eden Brew has been able to demonstrate really clearly that we have a, uh, a point of difference around our technology and a very clear strategy and that's resonated. What does milk produced via precision fermentation taste like? So we believe that our final products will be so close that it'll be very difficult to discern any difference. Uh, the prototypes we've made right now are also very, very close. You take the proteins, you form the micelle, um, you add sugar instead of lactose, so it's a, it's a lactose-free product, and we use a coconut base to uh, make a, a fat complex uh, that goes in, and then the rest really is about, um, is, is about flavour, and uh, we can get a very close flavour match. So um, the prototypes we've made, um, we used uh, with a lot of our investor meetings to demonstrate our ability to get a very strong dairy sensory experience, um, and we're really proud of that. What kind of scale will you be able to produce that and what kind of land footprint um, will that require? I think we're going to need um, significant scale over a long period of time. We are working with a business called Cauldron, um, also based in Australia. We're very lucky to have a very world-class precision fermentation business in our backyard here. Uh, and so we're working closely with them on what our scale-up looks like and then the size of uh, the production plants that we would build into the future. And we would expect to build a number of, of them with cauldron. Uh, so again, the, the, the land footprint that those designs require, I'm unclear on. It will be a lower land footprint than a plant-based milk or a dairy-based milk because we're not necessarily growing um, the, the same sort of crop to feed into the process. So we see it as being uh, less onerous on land, but um, we're not sure how much. And what about um, energy and water inputs? Dairy can be quite intensive in terms of energy use and water use. Uh, I think energy could be as much as 50% of the cost of running the fermentation plant. Uh, so renewable energy is really important. Utility management and, um, and managing waste is really important, uh, like all manufacturing processes. Uh, in terms of water, we, we will use a fraction of the water that is um, required within the dairy industry and within um, plant-based milks. Um, and uh, we, at this point in time, forecast to be under 10 litres of water for one litre of milk produced. And how does that compare with dairy? So dairy is around about 1,000 litres, um, and almond milk, for example, is around about 6,000 litres per one, one litre made. Do you expect any pushback from consumers who might be a bit sceptical about the technological processes? I think because it's new, um, we have a job to do to explain exactly how the product is made and why it is safe. Uh, a lot of this technology is already consumed on mass scale, whether it's rennet in cheese or whether it's insulin. It's a very safe and widely adopted technology, but it hasn't been uh, necessarily used at large scale in food. So we've definitely got a job to do to explain to customers what the product is, how it's made, why it's safe, uh, and how it adds value to the repertoire of choices that they've got. Jim Fader, he's the co-founder and the CEO of precision fermentation company Eden Brew, and he was speaking to Fiona Broom. And Jim Fader mentioned Norco is a co-founder. Norco is an Australian farmer-owned dairy cooperative 
with 326 members on 199 dairy farms across New South Wales and Queensland. Michelle on the text is not convinced and says synthetic milk or more accurately protein juice Product in search of a market. No thanks. Have your say on the text 0448 922 604. 16 to 1. Well, the agriculture industry is often dealing with challenging circumstances from poor commodity prices and seasonal conditions to biosecurity concerns and disputes with key international markets. But sometimes this industry is a lifeline to someone in need. Today, I want you to meet Hayden Russell, who owns his own herd of cows and runs a small dairy in WA's southwest region. It is a very different life to his early years because for the first 15 years of his life, Hayden was in Perth, moving from place to place with his mother, who was struggling with drug addiction. As a child, I... um... I had a bit of a rough upbringing. I, my parents, well, I didn't know my dad and my mum was um, around doing the wrong things, I guess, on drugs and this and that. So I grew up on the streets around Goswells, Maddington, sort of the outer metro area. Till I was about 10 years old. Uh, when I was 10, I was very fortunate that I always had a extended family that um, I could find comfort in on school holidays and the odd weekend. So I... Um, I went to live with my auntie and uncle when I was 10, thank goodness. Um, and that got us off the, got me off the streets and into a little bit of a stable life. But it also took me away from my uh, family, which was quite a tough time in my life. And uh, then we went, stayed there for five years and I was very, very fortunate. Um, they put me into good school when I was, when I went to live with them, I couldn't spell cat or dog or uh, anything like that. I was very, very, very behind. I went to live with them and they put me into a reasonable school and uh, and then at the age of 15 um, we thought that my mother had got off the um, straightened herself out and got off the drugs and I went back to live with her but that wasn't the case so I had to find a job very fast to pay the rent and and make things work. So, yeah, so that's a, a brief outline. Yeah, I mean, that, there's a lot to unpack in your first 15 years of life. So you were, what, literally on the streets homeless before the age of 10? Oh, definitely, yeah. So the last year from 9 to 10, we moved theoretically, 20, uh, it was 21 times in, in about about 12 months. It was basically from drug house to drug house and then in, in and out of the car and... And, uh, yeah, very, very unstable life. Saw things in that time of my life that uh, most adults should never see. Um, mm. So that really affected me. And then we, um, yeah, one school holidays, I went to my auntie and uncle's and mum basically didn't come back. So, yeah. That, uh, I mean, you must have, just your your awareness and your, your street smartness. I mean, th- these are things you must have learned at the ages of eight and nine. That they know, were. that no eight or nine year old should should be aware of. No, it was it wasn't uncommon for mum to give me a couple of dollars and say, "Go and make yourself busy for the day," and you just take off into the streets on your bike for at seven, eight, nine. 
Yeah, it was pretty tough. You know, it wasn't till I just thought that was life, though. Like it, it, the old saying, if you know no different, you just think that's life. But then, you know, like I say, I had extended family and I had cousins that didn't live that way. And when I would go to their house, I'd think, gee, this is nice having a, hmm. a warm bed and um, and people that love you around you. You know, I'm, I must say, like I mum was always around but she just was very sick you know with um what she was dealing with in her life so it's not that uh, yeah it was it was tough because i always thought that i had a loving parent around but in the same breath i was getting abused quite badly and um and exposed to things it wasn't until i was about much later in my life much much later i was about i think i must have been about 22 or 3 and i had a I've got a nephew who is, he came up to me and he was about six or seven and, uh, and something he said one day just absolutely rocked me. Um, because, and I just broke down into tears because I thought he, at his age, what I was, what I was exposed to, it wasn't right, you know, and it, and it did, it, it, yeah, it just wasn't right. And kids at that age should not, did not be exposed to things like that. So, yeah, it's interesting, but it makes you into a better person if you want it to. Absolutely, absolutely, Hayden. And why are you so, tran- I mean, you're so honest and transparent with your story. Have you always been like that or did, did it take some work um, to get here? Yeah, look, it's taken a lot of work later in life um, growing up, I guess. You know, like I would love if somebody can hear my story that's going through a similar experience in their childhood yeah, in their childhood or in their life currently or, or, or a teenager that's sort of a little bit off the rails because they've had a pretty shitty life or, excuse my language, pretty rough um, upbringing. Um, if they can sort of listen to my story and maybe take some comfort out of it that you can strive to to do whatever you want. You know, you're in control of your own destiny. It doesn't matter where you've come from you can achieve whatever goals you set out for yourself. And, you know, I was basically illiterate and, you know, even now I still struggle sometimes with, you know, I'll be typing, I'll be typing out a letter or something and I'll get to a word and I'll think, gee, I don't know how to spell that word. And so Google's an amazing thing. <laughs> Absolutely, mate. So you're 15 and you find a job on a farm in Mundajong, is that right? That's right, yeah. So when I was 15, I... I was working at a, um, my auntie and uncle put me into a good private school. And when we went back to live with mum, uh, mum couldn't afford the school fees. So I said to my principal at the time, she was an amazing lady, that I needed to, is there any way I could pay my fees? And uh, at the time they were looking for a gardener. So I started doing the gardening at the school before and after school to pay for my school fees. And then I was gardening one day and the chairman of the school board came past. It was a very small school. Um, I was the foundation year of the school and the chairman of the school board came past and he said, what are you doing here? I said, oh, I'm just gardening to pay for my school fees. Um, And he said, okay, no worries. And uh, he, the next fortnight, they used to top up, they used to pay me like I'd take out might have been $400 a fortnight for the fees and then any extra work I did they'd pay me so the next the next fortnight my bank was full basically I got paid for everything and I said well you've made a mistake you know we've I've been overpaid and he said no there's uh Ken Court who was the chairman of the school board he he's paid all your school fees so wow. um 
that was I was in year 10 then so he paid for the last two years of everything that I needed for school which was just unbelievable you know I've also and then also from there he gave me a job he had a farm a beef farm and a marron farm uh, in the hills of Mundijong and I went and worked there casually as I could and he basically took me in as part of his family you know he they are amazing people and he in particular is just very very influential man in my life if it wasn't for him I don't know where I'd end up and so then from there I went uh, at the same time I was also exploring a job on a dairy farm uh, in Mundijong and I was milking cows well no I started feeding calves actually after school and um, and on the weekends as well and from what, once I got to that, that's all I ever wanted to do. I, I just fell in love with animals and because all my auntie and uncles, when I lived there, they had a very small hobby farm. Um, so I had a little connection with cows already. And then, yeah, I, I just, it's all I ever wanted to do. So if I wasn't mm. at school, I was at the dairy. Mm. So it sounds like um, the kindness, generosity of, a, of a, a few key people in your life um, got you to where you are today. Can I ask, how old are you now and what does life look like? So I'm about to turn 30 um, next month and um, I, I'm very, I'm in a very fortunate position. So I lease land, I, I lease all of our farmland and I've got my own herd of cows, about 300 cows plus, um, you know, bits and pieces, heifers and stuff. And then I, I've started about 18 months ago, I was struggling to make it pay on the, um, conventional milk prices that the big suppliers were giving us so I started our own brand that I hand built the factory on the farm that I lease um, by pulling down other secondhand cool rooms and and buying secondhand equipment and we hand built our factory and we're value adding our milk now through our our own brand and um, and life's turning around and like it's, it's been a hard slog even though I've been very fortunate it has been very tough to get where I am now because if it wasn't from the help and support of sort yeah. of outside people and and good friends you know I've I often say I've been very fortunate having people come into my life at the right times like Ken Court came into my life at the right time uh, another dairy farmer uh, Ross Woodhouse he came into my life at the right time when I was about 20 and I sort of was at a bit of loose ends. Um, he really moulded and shaped my passion for the dairy industry into what it is today. I often say he's got a lot to answer for. <laughs> dairy farmer Hayden Russell speaking to Stan Shaw. Six minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Well, imagine deciding to grow something new, but having to wait up to seven years to get an income from the new crop. Well, that's the case for Dion and Melissa Stikey in Victoria's Sunraysia region. They're in the process of transitioning from stone fruit to pistachio nuts. And one of the big reasons is because they're reducing their need for pickers. The oldest ones are six years old. We've got ones up until we just planted some three, four weeks ago. We planted some. We planted them in lots of approximately 30,000 per lot. And yeah, the oldest ones are coming up six years, and we hope to get it. Well, hope to get some sort of income back off them this year because up until now, the fertilizer costs it's been killing us. Of course, it's a very long and slow process with pistachios. You got a lot out, like, and nothing coming back in for what six, seven years. 
It's a long time to wait for a paycheck, um, Dion. It's, it, it's a long time to live off the fat on your back, I can tell you. Luckily, I've kept, I've kept some of the better varieties of the stone fruit to keep paying some bills, and we're going to transition this year over at the end of the season. Like We'll go over to, well, solely pistachios. This is what we're aiming to do. Now, you've just done your first harvest of those six-year-old trees or your first shake. Is that, how you, is that what you call it? That's right. They were five years old at that stage. Because of the uh, bad seasonal weather last year and the floods and that, we copped a bit of disease and stuff in the nuts. I think we got, I don't know, maybe half a kilo a tree. Don't hold me to it, but about half a kilo a tree. It was enough to get the machinery going here also because we we're actually putting in a um, – we're putting a dehulling plant here also and we're going to dehull them and we've got a grading machine coming this winter and we're going to actually do the whole lot ourselves now. Now, in terms of the harvest and, and the reason it's so less labour intensive, is that, is that because you send a machine down the rows, is it? Yeah, that's correct. 90% of it is machine done, um, whereas the stone fruit, 90% of the work is is manual labour and like I said, our labour costs here, it's its too dear. We have a minimum wage now, even if the workers like are underperforming, we still have to pay them that money and it's just unviable. Like many growers around here, they're just abandoning their orchards. My next door neighbour here has abandoned his orchard. The trees are there. I'm looking over, they're dying now. But with the with the pistachios, um, the the shake that you did of your trees, how did that go in terms of where your plan is at? Did it, are, you, are they performing okay? Yes, yes, it's okay. It was a big learning curve. Like we'd never driven the shakers before. I've got a couple of blokes who work uh, for me who are off a wheat farm when they were younger, and they're very good with machinery. And um, I've been around machinery all of our life, my life, and um, we got the hang of it pretty quickly. Yeah, like we're kind of getting geared up for, well, future years, we're hoping. Dion Steikey explaining to Emma Field why he's getting out of stone fruit and into pistachio nuts on his farm near Swan Hill in Victoria's Sunrager region. Two minutes to one to the markets and almost 4,000 sheep and lambs sold at the Catanning sale yards this morning. So that is about a 30% drop in numbers on last week. Tracy Kilner has been keeping an eye on proceedings for MLA. Hi Tracy, what were prices like this morning? An average quality yarding saw prices fluctuate with the prime lamb gaining marginally while stores and unfinished line e- lines eased with demand. The plain sheep once again sold to minimal values and mutton eased with process selective. Lightweight new season lamb sold to $48, trade weights returned 60 to 69 and heavy weights up to $92 a head. Lightweight old season lambs sold to $47, trade weights made from 14 to 62 and the heavy lambs sold up to $71 a head. Store use made from $5 to $20, medium weight sold from 10 to 45 with a fleece and heavy weights over 30 kilos carcass weight sold to $56 a head. Ram lambs made from $5 to $10, while mature rams sold from $5 to $35. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you, Tracy. 3,968 was the exact final tally today. Great to talk to you today. The One O'Clock News is next. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.